So what I would like to talk about this evening is what are called in the Buddhist teaching the four great contentments. So some 2,600 years ago, exhausted by years of struggle and striving and resistance, the young, somewhat disappointed and disheartened Siddhartha recalled a time when he was a young boy, just sitting on a hillside overlooking his father's fields and watching a farmer plowing the land. And he remembered that there had arisen in him an unexpected and unsought for, but very powerful and very sublime sense of contentment. That in that moment there hadn't been any thought of going anywhere, of getting anything. In that moment there hadn't been any thought that there was anything missing. He was remembered it as a time of being remarkably and powerfully present. And it was a moment, a very a very deep sense, perhaps his first encounter, with a very deep sense of ease and joy and stillness. Now that moment of contentment and the memory of it was for Siddhartha a very powerful turning point in his quest for liberation. Because it really encouraged Siddhartha to to look at what the difference is between striving and aspiration. It made Siddhartha question the very powerful urges that had driven him throughout his whole life, as long as he could remember, to look outside of himself to look to the future for the happiness and the peace and the freedom that he felt to be absent in the present. And that memory is said to have made Siddhartha question whether the freedom and the liberating peace that he sought for whether that was going to be born of something that he gained or what he could let go of. Now, if you read at all the the discourses, the suttas of the Buddha, you see how frequently this word contentment is mentioned that it is repeated time and time again. If you look at the the discourse on metta or loving-kindness, you see how central this quality of contentment is said to be. If you read many of the descriptions of liberation, of a, a liberated heart, you see how contentment is said to be a key part in, the, in that liberation that it's said to be very central to the understanding of what peace is, of what joy is. And in the talk this evening, I would like to, to draw a little bit on some of the poetry from the early Chan nuns. 
because it features it 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 rotates so frequently around this understanding of contentment. So in one of these early poems, it's written, The entire day I searched for spring, but spring I could not find. In my straw sandals, I tramped among the mountain peak clouds, home again smiling. I finger a sprig of fragrant plum blossom. Spring was right here on these branches in all of its glory. I would encourage you to reflect upon whether you can remember any moment in your own life where you too have perhaps mugged into a very deep sense of contentment. Perhaps, perhaps there's even been a moment today when you've stepped outside or sat in here and simply been touched by the the loveliness of the quietude, the openness, the vastness of the sky. And if you can reflect or remember upon any moment of deep contentment in your life, you have the sense that within that, this, this feeling of being able to relax into stillness, how in those moments there's this, this wonderful cooling of all of the waves of agitation about where we want to go, about what we want to become, about what we feel we need to get rid of in order to be contented. I think in those moments of contentment, you you can almost feel this sense of the heart unbinding, this very deep sense of ease. ease. And if if you reflect through your life, perhaps you, you can even remember longer moments when all sense of insufficiency or lack fades away. And when you feel able to to truly be present in the presence of all things. What do those moments, what do those moments of contentment teach us? No matter how brief they are, what does contentment teach us about the nature of happiness and the nature of unhappiness? Certainly the the Dalai Lama or the Buddha speaks about contentment as the greatest of all blessings and this seems to be shared amongst many great teachers. The Dalai Lama in speaking of contentment, he says if one cultivates simplicity, contentment comes. Simplicity is extremely important for happiness. Having few desires Feeling satisfied with what you have is very vital. Satisfaction with just enough food, clothing and shelter to protect you from the elements. And finally, there is intense delight in abandoning faulty states of mind and cultivating helpful ones. I think sometimes when we hear the word contentment, 
you know, images might arise in your mind, you know, of cats sitting in front of warm fires or cows grazing across the fields, you know, from one mouthful of grass to the next. But as a doorway to the liberated heart, the quality of contentment that the Buddha emphasizes so strongly is not a bovine contentment. (laughs) And it's not a prescription for resignation or for surrender of aspiration. Instead, instead contentment, the landscape of contentment, is talked about as a landscape that is so vital and so alive and the very beginning of a life of freedom. Now, I I would like to just touch briefly upon the historical context for the teaching of the four great contentments, because I think it's, it's deeply important to have that understanding of that historical context. If you can imagine 2,600 years ago in India, life was probably very, very difficult for most people. You know, life of impoverishment, a life of uncertainty, a life of tremendous instability. And yet, despite how little people had, there were men and women who went to join the Buddha in the homeless life, really surrendering and giving up those very traces of security and identity and and safety in this homeless life where every morsel of food they ate, it depended upon someone else's generosity, where any sense of safety depended upon others' generosity. And yet many did this, and the ability to rest in a contented heart was a key to that life of homelessness, being a life of peace rather than a life of desolation and fear and deprivation. Now that is as true for nuns and monks today as it was in those early days. And when men and women would go to join the Buddha in the homeless life, the first instructions they would be given were the teachings on the four great contentments of a noble life. The the teaching would begin by encouraging people to be contented with any robe they were given, whether it was lovely or shabby, or even if they weren't given a robe at all. And here the Buddha, you know, cautioned against poverty conceit, you know, knowing the ingenuity of the human mind. He said, and I'm paraphrasing this a little, obviously. He said, said, don't think just because you're content with any old robe that it makes you a better monk than Fred down the road, you know, who's got a really fine robe. The second part of the teaching was to be content with any food you are given whether it was a gourmet meal or scraps from the table, or even if you were given no food at all. 
The third was to be content with any lodging you are given, aware of what lodging is for, not worrying if you are given no lodging at all. You could imagine retreat managers all around the world getting happier by the moment in these teachings. But again, the Buddha cautioned against conceit, not using one's own contentment to judge others. And the fourth of the great contentments was to discover the happiness and find contentment in the happiness born of letting go and develop, letting go of the unhelpful and developing the unbounded heart. Now, clearly, what the Buddha was pointed, pointing to here was about our attitude, our relationship to all things. The teaching of contentment was not about enduring. It was not about sort of finding happiness in deprivation or cultivating misery. We really spoke about the teachings of contentment as the cultivation of joy. Now, of course, we might say, well, this is a very fine teaching for monks and nuns, you know, but what does it have to do with us as lay people? And I think it has everything to do with us as lay people. Because the teaching of contentment is really not a teaching about what we have or what we don't have. The heart of the teaching of contentment is no longer agreeing to the world of conditions, whether it's food or clothing or experience, no longer agreeing to the world of conditions being the gatekeeper of our happiness and freedom. Now, if you think of any single moment when you have found yourself today or in the past really wrestling with the world of conditions... You know, whether it's the weather or your roommate or your cushion or the food, and you, we go into the arguments, you know, I need this and I can't bear this and I must have this and I must get rid of this. If you can think of any single moment where you find yourself wrestling with the world of conditions, you have probably noticed that you are instantly unhappy. Probably notice that you instantly suffer. And what is often being experienced in those moments is the suffering of discontent. <laughs> now, what the Buddha was very radical in questioning is, ask, is, is encouraging us to ask ourselves whether the conditions in the world actually hold that power to determine our happiness and unhappiness, to determine our sense of freedom or sense of imprisonment, to inviting us to question whether the conditions in the world actually intrinsically hold the power to project us into distress and anxiety and the fear of insufficiency, or whether this is a power that we hand to the world of conditions. This is not saying that the world of conditions is just fine and terrific and acceptable. We all know that that is not true. 
we all know that we meet and live with and are asked to meet countless conditions in our life, in our world, in our relationships, which are deeply, deeply challenging and difficult. So it's not trying to sort of like gloss over the conditions and say it's all neutral. That wasn't true for monks and nuns 2,600 years ago. That is not true for us today. There are many conditions which are indeed, indeed, very, very difficult to meet. The question is not that. The question is whether that has the power to be the gatekeeper of our freedom and our happiness. This is, in reality, where the Buddha was very radical in his teaching because central to the teaching of the four great contentments is the proposition is the proposition that the source of joy and the source of sorrow, the source of content and the source of discontent lies within our own hearts. There is a poem by Kabir, some of you may be quite familiar with. I said to the wanting creature inside me, what is this river you want to cross? Do you believe there is some place that will make the soul less thirsty? In that great absence you will find nothing. Be strong then and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Think about it carefully. Don't go off somewhere else. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. This understanding, I think, this understanding is the beginning of contentment. It is almost like every moment of discontent is like a heavenly messenger waving at us from the crowd, that every moment that we feel the surges of distress, they say, I don't want this, I don't like this, I need this. It is as if those surges and those waves of distress have written upon them the reminder and the invitation to stop, to be still, to be aware of where we are delivering the calmness and the peace and the sufficiency of our own hearts into the hands of conditions, conditions that we cannot always control, conditions that can be difficult, but conditions that we can understand, conditions that we can make peace with. No, contentment in my understanding of it is not a feeling. It's not some kind of state. It is an understanding. And, and I feel that contentment has so much to do with what we are choosing to do with our attention. Because have you, have you noticed how easy it is to feed discontent? And how endlessly we can do that with our thoughts, with our insistence, with our, our judgments. 
if you think about it, I mean, how many situations today, you know, have you have you rubbed up with the world of conditions that's hard to be with? You know, maybe you're, you know, you stand in the lunch line and and that, you know, your your eyes are hungrily gazing upon the salad bowl, you know, and the person in front of you, you see them, they take the last of the salad, you know. Now, it, it's, it's a difficult condition, right? I mean, that's not fun for anybody. You know? But do you notice what we can do with our attention? How endlessly we can feed that surge of discontent. You know? Why does that always happen to me? You know? I knew that person was a kind of mindless person who would take the last of the salad. You know? And you know, if they were a little bit more mindful, they would notice that I was behind them. You know? But life, my life is like this. You know? Things just go wrong. I'm the kind of person who never gets the salad. You know? And we can go on and we can go on and we can go on. And you notice that when we do that, what are we doing? Aren't we just fanning the fires of the discontent but more than that we're fanning the fires of the insufficiency the belief in insufficiency the more we do that the more have we handed the kind of peace and freedom of our own hearts into a piece of lettuce (laughs) never had the power never held it never held it or we could do that with our attention Or there are other things that we could do with our attention. We could certainly notice what is happening. We may even notice that it is difficult, you know. But we can just actually really return our attention to being with that that difficult condition, to know it, to be steady, to be upright within it. We can learn to simplify. We can learn to calm the waves and actually we can learn to cultivate contentment. There's a a piece of a poem by David White called Enough. It says, Enough, these few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now. The 2,600 years ago, the Buddha identified the force of craving as being just one of very, very few forces that seem to hold the power to dispossess us of freedom and to cause immense struggle and sorrow and distress. He likened craving to being a thief that takes up residence in our heart, and that craving has a mission, and that the mission of craving is to convince us of our own insufficiency, to steal the contentment and freedom from our hearts, and in a very real way to blind us, in a way, to to knowing the contentment that is possible and available in each moment. Instead, when the Buddha talks about craving, he said it is one of these forces that he experienced in his life, just as we experience in our lives, that craving holds, seems to hold this power to send us to prowl the world, to roam through the world, to find what we do not feel to be available within our own hearts, within our own minds. 
So, very helpfully, at least I've always found this quite helpful, the Buddha provided a road map of craving, which I certainly think that we can probably all, to one extent or another, be able to follow in our own minds and hearts. It's short list, you know, amongst the Buddhist many lists, this is a short one. So, they talked about the craving for sensual pleasure, the craving for becoming, and the craving for non-becoming. That's it. So let's look at the first, the craving for sensual pleasure. Notice it's not about sensual pleasure. It is the craving for sensual pleasure. Now, I think we would all, it's very important to make that distinction. Because I think we would all acknowledge that there are countless moments of loveliness in each day. You know, the sight of the birds in the sky, you know, the, the, the loveliness of the sky, the trees silhouette, silhouetted against the sky. Sometimes in fortunate moments we even encounter loveliness within ourselves. The range of lovely thoughts that we may have, generosity, kindness, appreciation, patience. And what we do notice is that the lovely gladdens our hearts. It brings a sense of spaciousness. They bring a sense of connectedness. And I find that too many people, Westerners in practice, almost feel afraid of the lovely, that if they appreciate the lovely, they're somehow it's like a, an automatic sort of sentence to descend into hell realms of you know, grasping and clinging, you know, which, of course, that's also giving a certain power to the world of conditions, including the lovely ones. It is very, you know, it's almost as if there can be this impression that we have a more noble or virtuous practice if we're spending every possible moment, you know, grappling with suffering or enduring pain. But the lovely is part of the fabric of all experience. And, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but in a very real way, I feel, within the lovely we actually sometimes get our first taste of contentment. First genuine taste of contentment. Because if you notice, when you are really in contact, really mindful, present within the lovely, you notice how there's that moment actually of enough, sufficiency. Not the sense that I need to make this better you know, or I need more of this. So it's just that moments where you relax and you can feel so present. Now the pleasant, you know, sensual pleasure has never ever been a problem or an obstacle. But that moment of being able to relax into the lovely is so often followed a moment later by that very feeling of, you know, well this is lovely, I actually would like a little more of this. You know, or I would like this to last a little bit longer, or how am I going to sort of, you know, stake my claim to this? You can feel something else begin to creep in. Oh, the meal was good today. You know, tomorrow I'm going to make sure I'm first in the line, you know, in case that 
solid disappears. You know, we have a little thought about a person that we really like, and there's that moment, you know, that when that image appears, you know, there's that moment of it appears, and you feel the sense of appreciation, you know, and, and kindness. And then, you know, a little moment later, well, that feels so good, you know, I think I'll have a little fantasy about them, you know. And the next time I'm going to meet them, you know, what we're going to do together. You know, craving even has the power, it seems, to destroy or undermine even our initial sense of appreciation with the lovely. You know, I teach at a centre some in Switzerland. Um, it's very high up in the Alps, you know, and probably has one of the most gorgeous views you can ever imagine of any meditation centre, you know, in fact, the, the big windows of the meditation room, you know, you open your eyes and you're gazing out at these, you know, this array of Alps. It's absolutely astonishing. And I remember, you know, a few years ago teaching there and, and someone, of course, everyone mentions how absolutely amazing it is, this view. And this person on the retreat mentioned to me this really amazing view, you know, and how much she was just glorying in it, which I absolutely agreed with. You know, and then the next year came back and she said to me, you know, it's not quite as beautiful as I remember here. <laughs> You know, like I, you know, I'm I'm a very firm supporter of impermanence, but you know, it, even in that, I'm really pretty confident that in the space of a year, the Alps hadn't changed that much, you know. And yet, there was something that was tainting that capacity to see the lovely, and what was tainting it, of course, was the craving to repeat a previous experience, tainting the capacity to to see anew and to to see freshly and to, to see with those eyes of innocence that could, ha- that did actually delight in the lovely. Strangely, when we don't understand the power that craving has to sabotage freedom, we even try to use craving as a way to get rid of suffering. You know, you may have noticed that here, you know, if you have a sort of difficult sitting, you know, difficult body experience or an unpleasant mind state, you know, if, if you were in a different environment, what would you do with that? You know, you might just, you know, phone a friend, <laughs> you know, open the fridge, turn on the TV, you know, I'm going to use craving to fix this unpleasant experience. I mean, the Buddha so much spoke about craving being the cause of suffering. And yet, in not understanding that, perversely, we even try to use craving to get as a way of getting rid of suffering. And instead of doing so, what craving does is it compounds suffering. Now, what is really going on underneath that? I think it's so important that we investigate and look for ourselves, the way that craving operates in our lives, the way that it gets used consciously and unconsciously. And I think one of the big agendas of craving is trying to create a world where we only have pleasant experience, pleasant sensations, pleasant tastes, pleasant sounds, pleasant thoughts. Now, I'm quite sure in our more sane moments, we acknowledge that nobody in the entire history of human race has ever managed to achieve this. But that doesn't stop us trying. The very intellectual awareness that it's doomed to failure. 
The subtext, though, is that I can only be happy and at peace in the midst of pleasant experience. And that in the midst of unpleasant experience, I will be unhappy and discontented. This is what the Buddha asked us to question, because if that belief system is operating, we're basically saying farewell to all capacities for equanimity, for liberation, for compassion, for kindness. So it is so important to question that. Now, in those moments of struggling and wrestling with the world of conditions, contentment can feel very, very far away, but I think we really need to question if that is so. If it is perhaps not right here in our willingness to realign our attitudes, to align our understanding with the way things actually are. Perhaps contentment begins in all the moments when we can find the willingness in ourselves to meet the surges of discontent, to meet the surges of agitation, and to begin to cool them. To begin to cool them. Again, there is a poem from the, the early Chan nuns she wrote spring morning on the lake the wind merges with the rain worldly matters are like flowers that fall only to bloom again i retire to contemplate behind closed doors a place of true joy while the floating clouds come and go the whole day long The craving to become, craving to become is the second on this short list. Do you remember as children all the various fantasies you entertained about who you wanted to become when you grew up? Some famous musician, some perfect partner, some wonderful artist, someone who's very popular, very successful. Now, for you know, many of these fantasies may be just distant memories. But I think we don't always acknowledge, don't always see how discontented we can actually be with who and with how we are. It can feel almost like an existential kind of discontent. You know, and it often has its own vocabulary, you know, of not being good enough, you know, not being perfect enough, not being right enough, not being this enough. You know, there's not enoughness, which is, of course, the ideology of insufficiency. Now, that ideology, though, that belief system in insufficiency, of course, launches us into the craving to become which is also the craving that divorces us from what is being experienced in the moment. Now, in the movement, in the following in that belief of insufficiency, the following of the need, that craving to be more, to be more perfect, you might have had it today, you know, you need to be the perfect meditator. You know, that you need to be the perfect yogi, you know. You need to be the one who leaves the portion of salad and goes without, you know. 
You need to have a certain kind of experience. You need to be happy, you know, the craving to become happy. Even the craving to become contented, which is rather paradoxical. Um, But you may have noticed it today, but how noticing how that craving to become is always simultaneously a kind of rejection, isn't it? It's a kind of a denial, an abandonment, uh, a movement away, not just, I'm afraid, not just a, a movement away from how and who we are in this move, moment, but also a movement away, I fear, from acceptance and kindness and compassion. That the craving to become in the denial of ourselves is also a denial of that capacity that heartfulness of being able to embrace what is. Again, it's easy to use craving as a solution to what we can't be at peace with. Now, you know, experienced meditators excel in this, I have to say, far more than new meditators, because new meditators don't have expectations yet about what they're supposed to experience or, you know, what it looks like to be a perfect meditator, you know, or what they should be happening for them. But experienced meditators, this is much more... (laughs) How many people have been frustrated today? Being frustrated with yourself? Being frustrated with your meditation? You know, have you noticed this kind of like this story that starts to rise? You know, like I'm a really experienced meditator. I shouldn't be falling asleep, you know. I should be the brightest meditator of the bunch, you know, upright here, you know, shining an example to us all, you know. I'm an experienced meditator. This shouldn't be happening to me. What is going on here? It's just a craving to become. It's a craving to become, I want to be the perfect meditator. The list is endless in our lives, you know, to be the kind of person who has a certain kind of experience that fits in with our expectation of the experience that we should be happening, that a a kind of a, a good person happens. And if you notice that every time we have that belief in the need to become, that we, it is, you know, we have constant companions and sense of failure and adequacy and not good enough and needing something to go away. And the third kind of craving is the craving for non-existence. Now, the craving to become and the craving for non-becoming are very much tied up together. It's not like they have like an independent self-existence. Now, the most extreme form of the craving for non-existence, of course, is the desire to disappear. Suicidal thoughts. Wanting, needing something to go away. Wanting something to be annihilated, to disappear, the feeling of I cannot bear this, I cannot bear to be with this. Now, obviously, this craving for non-becoming arises, well, pretty obviously, in relationship to unpleasant experience. But do you notice how that reaction of needing something to go away can arise equally in relationship to some incredibly minor, unpleasant experience. You know, like someone coughs in the meditation room and, oh, I can't meditate in this. You know, I can't meditate as long as that's going on. You know, I need this to go away in order for me to have the perfect meditation. It's almost like the similar reaction, only different intensity, that can arise in relationship to some major, major experience of disappointment or failure, 
It's the fear of not being able to bear, the fear of being overwhelmed, the fear of not enough, not enough uprightness, not enough, not sufficient steadiness, not an, a sufficient balance within our own hearts to embrace the whole of our lives, which will include the unpleasant as well as the lovely. And this is what we are really encouraged to find in our practice, knowing how much we cannot control the world of conditions. If we are not to be overwhelmed, if we are not to be swallowed by the world of conditions, we need to find that balance within our own heart that has the courage and the fearlessness to embrace the whole of our lives, the lovely and the unlovely. Now, when we begin, I think, to track the movements of craving in our minds, our days, our hearts, it sometimes it can seem so pernicious and so pervasive, it's almost inconceivable to imagine the end of craving. What would our lives, our minds, our hearts look like in the cessation of craving? But in this teaching, that is what we are asked to imagine. The Buddha speaks of Nibbana as blowing out the fires of craving. Not as necessarily some, you know, ultimate breakthrough experience that exists some very far, distant, inconceivable future moment. But the Buddha speaks about blowing out through the fires of craving through the practice of contentment. Through the practice of contentment. Cultivating contentment in the face of all of the powerful surges or the small surges of craving that encourage us to pursue something elsewhere, to get rid of, not to, to get, find what we don't have outside, to get rid of what we do have, avoid what we do have, to cultivate contentment in all the moments when we find ourselves leaning forward into the future for what hasn't arrived, to cultivate contentment in all the moments we find ourselves seeking to become something as a denial of what is. <coughs> to be still and to be able to listen and to know that that is a path of unhappiness. And what we are practicing here is a practice of happiness that leads to the highest happiness. To cultivate stillness and contentment every moment we are able just to cool those little fires of craving. Cool the little fires of craving. This is not consenting to all difficult conditions, by the way. But cooling the fires of craving, we are actually learning to make contentment part of the fabric of our own hearts and our own consciousness and our own lives. We are learning to cool suffering. Now, this is not a sacrifice of aspiration. It is not a sacrifice of wise response to the world of conditions. It is not kind of ceding, you know, uh, okayness to everything in the world of conditions. It is, in fact, it is the aspiration for all that is wholesome, that is the heart and the journey, uh, the heart of the spiritual life. Aspiration is the heart of spiritual life. 
all the wholesome aspirations that bring us here, you know, the desire for love, the desire for kindness, the desire for truthfulness, the, the desire for freedom. In truth, those aspirations are not separate from the fabric of contentment because they are asking us really to look at where contentment is. I'd like to read you another poem from one of the early Chan practitioners. They wrote, I urge those of you who aspire to enlightenment. In aspiring to enlightenment, you must be diligent. If your mind is not completely sincere, you will wallow forever in the bitter sea. The great earth is vast and without limit, and sentient beings are too many to count. Yet how many people are there with the sense to leap out of the bitterness of samsara? Now, we don't always see craving as craving, but I think what we do see much more easily is agitation and restlessness. When our mind is filled with thoughts and plans, and, and you know, when you, you may have found it today, you know, when you walk through the house and you see how your eyes are prowling, hungry, where your body finds it hard to be still, when you, the moments when we feel impatient and frustrated and judgmental, all of this is agitation. And agitation is actually the visible face of discontent. So what happens if we're willing, just in those moments, look beneath that first layer of agitation and ask what the root of it is? And what do we see? Most often we see craving. The craving for more, the craving to get, the craving to become, the craving to get rid of. Now, if we look beneath that layer of craving and look at what is the root of craving, we might notice that it really is the belief in insufficiency. The belief in insufficiency. And if we can find the collectedness in ourselves to look those surges of craving and agitation in the eye, it will probably become evident that the anxiety of me is lurking underneath all of this. And that belief in insufficiency is part of that anxiety of me. Now, insufficiency... Not having enough, not being enough, is actually the belief system of the anxiety of me. And this goes right to the heart of the teaching of liberation. Because if the anxiety of me is left, is believed in, if left unquestioned, then discontent and its offspring of craving will follow, just like night follows day. This is a simple but not a very easy truth. But if we do not make our home in agitation, if we don't follow its waves, we also don't make our home in craving. If we don't make our home in craving, we do not make our home in the belief in insufficiency. This is at the heart of the teaching of the four great contentments. But it also points to the heart of the teaching of liberation. When the Buddha describes the potentiality of our heart and the essence of our hearts and minds as being luminous and radiant and without boundaries. Now, in an ideal world, 
In an ideal world, we would discover unshakable inner freedom and contentment. And then in the light of that discovery, we would, lay down, we would lay down agitation and craving would just fall away. Now, perhaps some, for some extraordinary yogis, it happens in that order, but I, I haven't met them yet. For everyone else, where for the rest of us, we're asked to cultivate contentment first to unbind our heart from the grip of agitation and craving by making a commitment to contentment. And I really encourage you to think of contentment not as a state, but as a practice, as an application, as an embodiment. Now, one of the ways that the belief in insufficiency manifests is agitation The other, I think, is it ways it manifests in terms of doubt, self-doubt, that extends then to doubt in the path, doubt in the possibility of genuine transformation, doubt in our own capacity. And have you noticed what doubt does, how doubt makes us waver, how doubt weakens commitment, doubt weakens intentionality, doubt weakens commitment. Now, you may have noticed this even today. You know, you might have got up this morning, you know, with the intention to have a truly dedicated day, you know. You're here on retreat, you know, all-out mindfulness project, you know. You, have it, you get up in the morning, I'm gonna, you know, it's going to be my most committed retreat ever. You go into your first sitting, your first walking, you know, and we meet the uncooperative mind and body. Suddenly you notice how another thought pops up, much better idea to go for a hike, you know, or, you know, clearly I need a nap, you know. How that intentionality and that commitment has begun to be eroded by, by the doubt. Now, doubt, doubt then begins to, to feed off this hidden belief in insufficiency, and doubt makes us waver in, in, in commitment. And the wavering, interestingly, convinces us of insufficiency. If you notice that. Doubt undermines intentionality and commitment. Makes us waver. Wavering reinforces the sense of insufficiency. I can't do this. It's impossible for me. It's, it's too much for me. And that is a toxic loop that can go round and round and round and round where intention is undermined by, by doubt, where doubt feeds off insufficiency and strengthens it, and then that makes it more and more difficult to make a commitment to actually anything at all. So where does, where does that toxic loop stop? We don't suppress agitation. We don't suppress doubt. We don't indulge in it. But I think in reality, one of the ways that we really look the belief in insufficiency in the eye fearlessly is by making commitment. When we make a commitment to being present with a single step, when we make a commitment to be present with a single sitting, a single walking period, I feel on some very, very deep level, we are making a commitment to our, insuff- to our sense of sufficiency. We're making a commitment to our capacity for freedom, for liberation. Hmm? 
Returning the tide. Returning the tide. And perhaps, you know, it is just making a commitment to one breath, to one step, to one moment. But every moment of commitment is actually like a... It it is... It is deepening a sense of sufficiency. And it is a cultivation of contentment. It is perhaps discovering that contentment is no further away than that step or that breath. I'd like to end with a a poem for one of the early early monks called Bhutatera. It's just kind of like the warrior poem of contentment. (laughs) It says, When the thundering storm cloud roars out in the mist and torrents of rain fills the paths of the birds, nestled in a mountain cave, one meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. When along the rivers the tumbling flowers bloom in winding wreaths adorned with verdant color, seated on the bank, glad-minded, One meditates, no greater contentment than this can be found. When in the depths of night in a lonely forest, the rain david drizzles and the fang beasts cry, nestled in a mountain cave, one meditates, no greater contentment than this can be found. Devoid of fear, one meditates, no greater contentment than this can be found. When one is happy, Expunged of grief, unobstructed, unencumbered, unassailed, having ended all deferments, one meditates. No greater contentment than this can be found. We've just a moment quietly together and then we'll break for a walking period. <laughs> <laughs>